This podcast was recorded on May 10th, 2022. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and people outside the binary. Broken Class is back in session. I'm your discussion leader, Thomas Huda, and I have a remote guest today who I'm really, really excited about. This is one of my final conversations with electoral candidates in the May primary of 2022, and uh, I have a historic candidate for uh, the Republican nomination for Oregon governor. This is Tim McLeod. Tim, how are you today? doing wonderful tommy how are you doing i'm doing really good thank you uh gonna kick it off right off the bat with what is a controversial opinion that you have about anything uh so in terms of controversial opinions that i have uh, as somebody who spent time working in the uh juvenile foster care and dependency courts um i really think that in regard to um cruelty against children, torture against children. Uh, I think that the state of Oregon must do more um, to prosecute uh, adults who commit crimes against children, which includes sexual abuse and other violent crimes. Uh, We're not saying that enough is being done. Uh, As governor, that's something that I wanna change. Uh, And on the other side of of, of crime, uh, I'd also like to see, I'd also like to see an organ death penalty regarding violent crimes against innocent individuals. Well, there you go. That's certainly something where I know that you and I are not going to always see eye to eye on everything. I am pretty flatly opposed to the death penalty, but it does bring up, I'll tell you this much, I will concede that it brings up these really, really fundamental questions of when people betray some of our most sacred laws of humanity and harm children. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you that um, there's a little bit of a personal angle uh, to it for me as somebody who grew up in a household where there was abuse um, and it was mostly verbal. It was mostly between my parents. There was an incar- incarceration that took place, but there was certainly uh, abuse towards my sister and I that played out. And so um, one thing that I that I hear when you t- talk about that and wanting to prosecute more is a certain amount of faith that I'm not sure I completely share that, um, you know, you, before this, uh, we talked just a little bit about this issue and you said, you know, these people should spend more time in jail for doing this. And I think that represents a certain amount of faith that that time spent in jail around other people who've also committed bad deeds, um, will, will rehabilitate them. And so from where do you derive that faith? I think that's interesting. Well, um, so interestingly, uh, there are a number of crimes, including crimes of passion, for which an individual who does spend time in prison will and can be incarcerated. Excuse me. Can and will be rehabilitated. My apologies. Mm. Um, But with regard to certain crimes, uh, specifically in regard to uh, sexual crimes and crimes against sexual crimes against children, um, it's, it's become clear that those individuals are unable to be rehabilitated. So when we look at how we can keep families safe, when we look at how we keep uh, prevent uh, future victims, um, we find that uh, releasing individuals who commit crimes against children, uh, violent sexual crimes against children back onto the street, they haven't experienced any rehabilitation. It's likely that they're among the, the population in the prison system to spend the least amount of time in jail and uh, they're returned to neighborhoods where Um, they're not monitored where they have access to families. And so it continues a cycle uh, against future, future children. So we really need to look at how we can uh, create balance 
uh, in the in the judicial system that recognizes that individuals who commit violent crimes against children are among our society's greatest threats, not the least. Okay. Um, and I would probably be able to ask you a question uh, to, I could test your knowledge of whether what the authority the Oregon governor has in these issues, but I don't really need to do that because you probably know that Governor Brown has been critiqued by a lot of folks on the right for the commutations of sentences for a lot of people who have been involved in uh, sexual assaults and other violent crimes. I don't know specifically the angle of child abuse. Um, so then I should ask you, uh, what would you do differently as governor? In regard to commutation of sentences? Yeah, like some of the high-profile ones that that have come around. I don't know if it needs to be super specific. You know, one of the other things that we're seeing right now is uh, we're not creating that important sense of accountability that comes with with returning to society as a as a felon so you've served your time um you want to reintegrate into society uh it's always a difficult process but you know at the same time we want to make sure that individuals returning to society with a desire to move forward and to return as uh, uh as a benefit as a uh, return as a member of a of a functioning healthy society we want to make room for those individuals but at the same time individuals who premeditate crimes as one of the high profile uh commutations included uh we need to ensure that uh, the families aren't re-victimized because that's ultimately what these commutations have created they've created situations of re-victimization uh forcing these families who have already suffered a significant and lifelong loss we're asking them to relive the trauma of that event and letting them know that their future is even less safe than it was before so there's obviously a lot that we can get into as far as what what could be done differently than what the current governor has done over her her last seven years in office. And the reality is it should be nearly everything. <laughs> um, so in regard to commutation, I think it's something that, uh, you know, at the very least, it requires a discussion with the offended or affected or injured parties. Uh, that clearly didn't happen in this case. Uh, okay. The family, the victim's family was among the last to find out. And as a result, you know, it really uh, created a uh, a new sense of trauma and fear on our streets, which is exactly the opposite of what the governor's uh, job is to do. Well, an unfortunate thing also is that I don't have to tell you that people who are victims of crime will sometimes blame themselves. So if you are in that situation and the government is, you know, has not consulted you in what was going to happen to somebody who really ruined your life or really, really deeply affected your life in a negative way. I can imagine people also struggle with that feeling of like, in what way did I contribute to allowing that person to do this or what could I have done differently? And, and that is really troublesome and, and disappointing that people have to do those mental gymnastics. Um, we've got right into a topic that's really juicy and interesting. Uh, and also, um, not the most comfortable, I would say for me to talk about, I'm, I'm sweating. <laughs> and, um, but you are, um, you're, I, I think of you as a really down to earth, fun loving gentleman. And um, we should uh, establish some of the context surrounding this governor's race because one reason I think I have a role in whatever my audience is that will listen to this and consider your candidacy is to spotlight people who um, 
might experience structural barriers to getting um, the kind of attention that their candidacy might deserve. Uh, I know that you had highlighted a specific um, barrier that the GOP set an arbitrary standard for, but you're running in a race with a lot of opponents. And uh, tell me how it's felt to be in that race and to try to get the word out. I mean, it's overall, uh, I felt that I feel that my campaign is going great. So where things are equal, I have the same opportunity to resonate with Oregon voters. And to this point, it hasn't mattered whether they are Democrat, independent, Republican, or not affiliated. I have a lot of people who have pledged to vote for me. And so that says something about the message I'm carrying forth. It says something about the way that I communicate with individuals and also the way that I'm listening to the issues that they're experiencing personally. That's important to me. And it has a lot to do with the reason why I'm running. Um, so in terms of candidacy, it's been it's been uh, unique in the fact that uh, I've really used the opportunity to speak, uh, speak my heart and speak the truth. Uh, no matter where uh, I go or I'm invited, I use the opportunity to uh, really bring uh, a sense of, of, of reason and logic and respect to the room. So uh, in those ways, I think it's going great. Uh, on the other hand, as you just mentioned, there are some barriers uh, which have been created internally by the GOP party, which is uh, actually astounding because the reality is, is that um, the parties uh, here in Oregon, they develop bylaws which prevent them from actually treating candidates unequally. And so, you know, it's really been a shock to me that uh, we have a number of counties that would stoop so low as to uh, prevent or circumvent the rules to prevent uh, legally qualifying candidates from accessing voters in their county through the platform created uh, by the party. And so, um, you know, I, I have had an opportunity to uh, uh, address issues directly, um, but also to seek to attempt to make the attempt to seek resolution before going to uh, going to uh, other avenues. Um, so one of the conversations that I have had uh, with Republican leadership regarding the situation led to uh, a response, uh, which was, uh, we'll look at fixing the bylaws after the election. So to me, that Great really timing. just great timing, but also represented uh, uh, a theme to me. And the theme is what is is in part helping me move forward in spite of that barrier that's been created. Uh, that theme is election integrity. Uh, I don't really mind the fact that there are a large number of candidates in this year's race. Uh, you, you and I briefly had a chance to discuss that, and I had let you know that it represents uh, government gone wrong. It represents uh, a, a group of people who who see that uh, the governor has uh, overstepped her boundaries. She has um, reduced our, our quality of life and our on our outcomes, uh, both in education, and, uh, economically, uh, you, you know, environmentally. You name it. We're we're all seeing a decrease in outcomes in in all areas across the board. And so I think on that note, people... on that front, you know, we could probably talk for a long time about the failings and we'll get to more of them. But um, 
But I, I mean, I'm reminded of what you're talking about through uh, I was a supporter for the most part of Andrew Yang during his presidential candidacy. When he ran for mayor of New York, I was a little bit uh, I came to view him as a little more chameleon like and more willing to adjust his values based on trying to get elected, which disappointed me. But at the time that he was running for president uh, of the United States as a Democrat, um, and I say this to say that the way that these parties operate uh it concerns me and not just the Republican party. Um, but they seem to have a moving threshold target for how many don't individual donors and how many, uh, certain metrics did he need to meet to make it to the debates? They didn't want him on the debates. So even though he, you know, got stayed on the stage longer than Kamala Harris, longer than Cory Booker, um, these previously elected federally elected democratic candidates, um, he was able to, to make it in there a little longer, but ultimately, you know, it is disappointing to me that a party apparatus, which is supposed to represent a set of common values to try to to build a team of people that are going to represent the people, will do so much to inhibit the voices of, of candidates. It's not cool. Well, just going back to that thought. So, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, the people have entered this race because they want they want change. And so it's not the party's. It's not the party's role to determine which of them the people want. Mm. So, you know, what the party's platform is intended to do is to bring awareness to all of the candidates in the party. It doesn't matter if there's 100. It doesn't matter if there's five. You bring the, the candidates together for awareness. That's the job of the party. The people are the ones who will decide whether or not that candidate has the appeal that, that they're looking for uh as organ voters or or any voters so uh really it's a it's it's a big step out of bounds um, by the party to to take this position and uh make a you know an informal commitment to change things following an upcoming election uh, the reality is is that uh, the first time that it's you know I, there's been several situations in which it's occurred so i can say there's counties that have not even reached out since i began my candidacy there's others who have invited me to events and told me that I was no longer invited to events and others that scheduled them without without ever, you know, considering uh, whether or not I would would appreciate even being there. So uh, mm. there's there's a lot of dysfunction that's occurring. And uh, one of the things that I tell people is that, uh, you know, it, it matters far less what your party is and it matters far more where your heart is. So one of the things I explain to people is that my heart is for the people. And so because my heart is for the people, I find myself in a position uh, to reject um, barriers that are artificially created by the party platform. And instead, I choose to continue my campaign for the individuals who, as I mentioned previously, Democrat, independent, non-affiliated and Republican who have already committed to voting for me. So based on that, that means that as I travel around, have opportunities to speak with people, I'm, we're finding commonality. We're reaching common ground. And this campaign is about unifying people. And that's something that I won't allow uh, any party to, to control. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, no one, no party should have a monopoly over that kind of a spirit. Um, but as you say, you've got people of all of many parties committed to voting for you. 
we do have a closed primary system. And so to vote for you in this, and the registration period has already passed, ballots are out now, um, they have to be a, a registered Republican to vote for you in this primary. Although if you are on the ballot, of course, uh, everybody will get a general ballot in November. Um, so what do you think of this open primary system? Do you think it's still um, working the way that it should? Or do you think, sorry, this closed primary system, or do you think it is one of those things that does uh, kind of, it's the status quo thing that keeps the parties most, uh, it, it limits the choices the vote of, of the voting populace overall. Well, I mean, I think you just answered the question. At least it was a question, but it also has an answer. So <laughs> the reality is, is it does. It does limit uh, access to uh, to election, to your right as an American citizen to participate in a free and fair election. Um, so the fact of the matter is we've seen that uh, the non-affiliated voters by one, by one reason or another uh, has become the Oregon's largest party. Yeah, uh, we know that there are a number of well, we know that uh, the parties, uh, in a sense, become beneficiaries of a system in which uh, their small group is able to uh, control an election. Uh, and at the same time, we have the, the majority of Oregonians who have been disenfranchised from the system. So the question is, how can it work? It doesn't work. And so uh, in spite of that, I'll let you know that uh, I still have Democrats who have agreed to to fill in as a write in my name on their closed primary ballot. I think that that is a it's a it's a statement. It's a statement about uh, my campaign. It's a statement about my ability to unify people. And it's also a statement about their willingness to to go against the grain in a system that doesn't want us to move against the grain in any shape or form. I appreciate that answer. Um, I probably have a couple things I could ask you more about the practical nature of getting into office, but really, uh, I want my audience to know who you are as a person. It doesn't. I we could do an hour talking about what's wrong with trying to get someone like Tim McLeod into office and and all the barriers that exist. But Tim McLeod as a human being is what I'm here to try to shine a little bit of a light on, and um, you know. I'll tell you how I found out about you. I was looking at the Oregonian has like their Oregonian.com slash election 2022. It's like their hub, I think for coverage. And I looked at everybody who replied to their questions, Republicans and Democrats who ran for governor. And, um, you know, there are a lot of candidates that are formidable that have out fundraised you by a lot based on their connections and, and, and things like that. But many of those candidates, I was disappointed personally to see that, uh, and we can have a nuanced conversation about this, but um, I actually saw, I'll just name um, Stan Pulliam. He's in your race, right? I'm trying not to name people very much because this is about you, but uh, it was really hilarious to me. Like at the beginning of his questionnaire, he said, I am unafraid to um, speak boldly about issues like abortion and um, election integrity. He said, oh, he's, I'm unafraid. Well, then you scroll down to the part where he's asked, did Joe Biden win the 2020 election? He said, did not support, did not provide an answer. So if you're unafraid to talk about it, why are you not at least giving some kind of uh, explanation there? And what I saw was that, and I'm not saying that this, that this means that there is a complete 100% lack of any irregularity or any um, politically calculated decision made in any state um, to, to, to support a certain candidate. I, I think 
fairness in our elections has been an issue for a long time on some level. But all of this to say, you said, yes, you believe Joe Biden won the 2020 election. And as soon as I saw that, I thought a lot of these people he's running against are not doing that. And that's a bummer to me because I want to believe in our democracy. And I, and I looked at <laughs> what I've looked at or whatever. And, and I believe that Joe Biden legitimately won the election. So that made you stand out to me. And then, um, you know, I, I believe that, um, black conservatives in Oregon, uh, have a voice that, that should be listened to because there's so much oversimplification of what is a Republican, what is an African American. And then, uh, even me just talking in this long-winded, not even really question thing. My point is that's how I got to know you and then wanting to, to see, uh, who you are. So, um, I'm going to ask you about sort of just what qualifies you, but, um, uh, but I am interested in that in that that experience of being, uh, I believe, the first uh, African American to run for governor as a Republican in this state. Uh, is that correct? And how has that experience been for you? You know, it it is true. Um, and so, you know, I guess one of the great things is, and you know, one of the great things and hardships is being the first. Mm. So uh, I'm the first to find out that the Republican Party doesn't play by the rules that it writes. You know, so that's uh, that's a significant um, disappointment to me. Mm. Um, so, you, you know, and I think that uh, a lot of the standards that were used to uh, determine whether or not a, a candidate is is sufficiently qualified, whether or not they're legally qualified is the standard. But according to uh, individuals perceptions, uh, I don't think that it, it actually uh, accounts for. Um, the type of hardship that an individual has had to overcome. So, uh, you know, living here in Oregon has been, um, it's been a great experience, but there's also been some significant trials that uh, a growing number of people seem to be able to identify with. But, uh, you know, 10 years ago, it how long have you lived in Oregon? People. I'm sorry, what was that? How long have you lived in Oregon? I think we're going on about 12 years. So my wife is born and raised Oregon, Lynn County. Uh, you know, we uh, we moved back to Oregon to be closer to the family network, you know, a good a good uh, support system here. But in the interim, uh, you know, I started in uh, Deschutes County. So, you know, raising a family in Deschutes County, uh, opened a small business there and state licensed child care uh, and was going to school online for uh, public administration uh, via Eastern Oregon University. Uh, so doing all of that, you know, that's exactly what you uh, you believe is the you know it's the right thing to do. It's it's uh, making your own path in life, and uh, you know even in doing so, small businesses at times they're very resilient. Our business was able to pay all of its expenses in the first year, and then going into the second year, you know, we had some changes with our account receivables and some other economic crisis. And then, you know, the whole business looked different, even though it's still operating and running well. Uh, that actually led to, you know, actually it was the increase in, in housing uh, during that time that kind of broke the, straw, the, the camel's back, the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, and so uh, going from, you know, you know, having housing security, running a business, being a student and a father to not having housing security and still, being a father and an honor roll student and a small business owner, uh, it's a real different feel. So uh, it's uh, very unique timing that I'm, I am entering this race because uh, I do have 
some experiences in, in terms of uh, what's important to Oregonians now. Um, I am aware of how transitional support actually helps to uh, end homelessness for individuals. But at the same time, it's not something that we can just throw money at. So for me, it took two jobs working endlessly to make sure that money was saved and that we were able to get back on our feet. Um, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be the political approach at this point. It seems to be an idea that we believe, at least generally speaking, that we can throw money at. That's not going to solve the problem. It's going to create more problems. And so uh, that's, you know, it's an issue that I, uh, you know, it's an issue that through experience, I understand better than a lot of people who would propose solutions, uh, just like going back to the, the child abuse. Everyone has a different opinion, but after you sit and you've read, you know, endless reports of children being hurt, you realize that we need to do something about it. Uh, and so, you know, I come from a place of, uh, of, of public service. So, you know, I've, I've spent time in the nonprofits. Uh, I know what it's like to run and, uh, and have to close a small business that's successful. The day I closed the door to my small business, I had new clients coming in to register. Wow. So that was kind of a sign to me that, you know, everything that we were doing is right, but the environment was wrong. You know, not being able to put a, a roof over your family's head, not because you can't afford it, but because or, or, or not because, you know, you aren't able to, but because uh, the prices are just getting out of reach for hardworking everyday Americans. You know, that's that's uh, something that uh, we've had over a decade to address. And at the same time, the issues only gotten worse. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Currently, you know, I'm working for a U.S. aerospace and defense manufacturer and, and a business as a business development contractor. So that gives me a lot of opportunities to study international markets, understand changes in, in the economy and be able to track and research trends. And I can track and trace those trends back all the way back to how uh, we are affected here in Oregon. So I do that as part of my work. But I also realize that it's an opportunity and research for an executive who needs to understand the markets, how we can preserve them, how we can uh, accelerate them, and what are the things that we're doing now that are gonna create future hardships. And we're seeing a lot of that happen uh, through our political leadership at this time. Okay, excellent. Um, I wanna dig a little more into what qualifies you to be Oregon's next governor. And, and, and in saying that, um, I believe that a broad different kind of range of qualities can all make up uh, an effective leader. And it's not always the person that, uh, in, in many cases, it's not the person that's the most safe and conventional. Um, but uh, I, I think it's it's really um, interesting in the media landscape of today, watching people that I've known in my life go from not being in certain positions that were highly public and then being in those positions and watching how they are defined, received, and sort of understood by the community. So like, for example, you know, I first met Kate Brown well before she became the governor, the governor, when she ran, I was pretty excited. And then, uh, I watched her make decisions that I disagreed with. Uh, and I also watched in many cases people, um, I think misrepresent uh, who she is and and um, people who have it's easy to sling mud, but it's not easy to do the actual job. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's going to take a tough skin if you're elected governor, Tim, uh, when you go in there, how are you going to control the narrative of people are going to say, oh, he's, you know, he, 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 he 
was, I, I know that you've shared that uh, homelessness is in your background. Homelessness is in my background too. Oh, he's this guy, you know, not working hard, making excuses. Or, oh, he's this guy. He thinks he can circumvent the party structure and he's criticizing the GOP. All of these criticisms are going to come in. And how are you going to respond to that? And uh, who really are, besides what people believe that they see, if you are to sit in that seat, who is really going to be sitting in that seat? That's my question. So, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, I come from a background, you, you had mentioned at the top how you had uh, experienced some, some forms of abuse in your background. Yes. So in my background, uh, you know, I come from a single, single parent household and, uh, you know, and a background that uh, was oftentimes spent in, in isolation, uh, not necessarily being uh, directly cared for. Uh, so those experiences have helped to shape me as a father. Uh, but at the same time, I recognize that, you know, my mom and grandma, uh, they, they did the best for me that they could. So they instilled a set of values uh, in me, such as uh, the, the desire to uh, protect vulnerable individuals, um, the desire to listen to people, and the desire to, uh, to, to demonstrate respect where respect is deserved and earned. Those are all things that uh, that I walk away with. And, and then the rest of it is me determining how I'm going to be a better in my life. So, uh, you know, as a father, uh, I care about uh, outcomes for our children. So that's the person that's going to be sitting in the chair, the person that cares about outcomes for our seniors, uh, a person that knows what it's like to work with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities and to help individuals uh, advance their lives. And not just somebody who's experienced homelessness, but somebody who's experienced homelessness while running a business, running a family and going to school at the same time. So there's, you know, there's different types of experiences that people have. And so, you know, all of those together uh, create a sense of compassion. They create a sense of, 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 of duty and honor regarding doing the right things uh, every time uh, and, and making sure that uh, it's not just, you know, looking at things. So one of the things that I tell people is that uh, I'm, I'm not so interested in following in any shape or form Kate Brown's path. I think that it was actually, uh, this isn't slinging mud. It's, it's the result. It's sure. the result of seven years in office. Fundamental disagreements. Uh, you know, you know, there's, there's in my, in my, you know, we'll, and that's part of this too, but realizing that, uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot to go wrong and it's not so much that, uh, you know, for me, mostly the, the biggest issue that I take is the use of the, the emergency act because the use of the emergency act created a one size fits all solution that actually denied you and me our constitutional right to a freedom of expression that's built into the Oregon constitution and offering a one size fits all solution is actually, that's the mud. Um, that's what was it used for? What, what right was inhibited? You're asking me what right was inhibited by the use of the emergency act. Yeah. Just to be clear well, for my audience. So, so we've had over 13,000 Oregon small businesses close. Our, our rate of homelessness has, has gone up. Our rate of crime has gone up. Our student outcomes have gone down. Our graduation rates have gone down. So there's a number of issues that were directly created by the use of the Emergency Act 
that uh, creates the reality that we do live in now. Uh, and so one of the things that I tell people is that it's better for us as a, as a state to pass fewer laws with greater consensus than it is to circumvent the legislature, the constitution and the Oregon people by an unconstitutional use of executive power. Uh, it's not something that I've ever agreed with, not since the first time it was used and not now that, these, uh, that the legislation is using the Emergency Act to pass laws uh, without, uh, without, uh, without study, without uh, you know, vigorous back and forth discussion on, on policy outcomes. Uh, you know, I, I, I come from a place of, of realizing that uh, we don't always, we aren't always able to match policy to people. Uh, we like to think that policy determines people, but really uh, we need to ensure that policy, uh, it, it meets the needs of people, that it first recognizes people. Um, we haven't seen that in the last seven years Um there's not a keystone piece of legislation. As a, as a uh, public administration uh, individual with, with a background and paying attention to policy, uh, is there, let me ask you, Thomas, is there a keystone uh, legislation that the governor has signed that, uh, that you feel is uh, something that she should be proud of or stand on? Uh, Student S- Success Act. I think that's the, the, the biggest one that... Uh, Tina Kotek took some of the lead on uh, Julie Fahey, Representative Fahey, and uh, it was a long overdue investment in public schools, and it had to be done through a tax. Um, but I believe that I, I it's unfortunate to me. I think that the Democratic Party has mostly been in control in the decades that schools have been uh, defunded, frankly, over time. But um, that was something that I was uh, I felt was essential to see. So that's is it is it Keystone? I don't know, but um, that's that's where I would point to. So Thomas, I'll tell you, my concern is that that legislation uh, it doesn't do it doesn't do anything that it proposes. In fact, the quality of our schools has only decreased so rapidly over the last three years that I made a decision to pull my children out of the public schools. Mm. There's not a chance you couldn't pay me to put them back into the schools as they exist now. Um, to me, they're a, a total failure. And I say that as the early childhood educator, they're a complete failure. Um, I heard so, you talk on a different pod. Do you want to address the changing of standards, D's and F's letter grades? I'm not a big fan of letter grades, but um, you're, you kind of have spoken to accountability graduation well so one of the things that i i've mentioned in the past uh, thank you for bringing that up is the fact that when we use the letter grade system uh they become uh an identifier for for children or students who are struggling and children who are are not showing the, the required effort to 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 pass uh, a given subject so uh, the reality is is that uh taking away d's and f's and it was specifically uh presented from the guys that uh, children from disadvantaged backgrounds, and that would have been somewhere where they would have, you know, included me in that discussion, uh, that, that they don't have the tools to not get Ds and Fs. Uh, that's the message that, was, that, that came across, which uh, is incredibly unfortunate and also very short-sighted. Um, Ds and Fs exist for the reason that uh, Passing, passing any particular class is a matter, it, it, it should be a matter of effort. In some cases, it's a matter of, you know, 
issues that can occur at home. It's an issue of not necessarily getting the, the necessary one-on-one time that a student needs. But the reality is, is that uh, we have to do more to prepare children for a future outside of school of being told what to do day in and day out. I had a conversation with uh, with an individual yesterday, and I wanted to focus on the distinction between uh, learning how to think and learning what to think. So as a university student, I said, uh, you know, I, I had let them know that during university, that was a, a, a important time for me because you learn how to think. And I said, isn't it sad that it takes us that long? We, we push that off until 13th grade. For the most part, do you do you, so? Do you see what the issue is? The issue is that learning for Oregon students doesn't begin until you're out of formal education. That is a significant problem, and there's not one piece within the legislation that does anything to address that. It just makes it so that the school, the school's role in child in childhood student failure is less recognizable because then all of these students can be condensed together and pushed out of the system simultaneously without any ability to recognize which of those children is struggling and which is not even nearly prepared for a life outside of the school system. So yes, it is. It's tragic. And so as as an early childhood educator, uh, one of the things that that I made clear to people is that my role Uh, in the education system was to prepare our youth for entering uh, elementary school, entering kindergarten with skills, advanced education for uh, for elementary school. So we worked on making sure that children were able to, you know, practicing fundamentals, reading, writing, numbers, while at the same time offering unique community experiences that they were not, that families were not able to find anywhere else. So that could have meant, uh, you know, for us in particular, that meant inviting members of the community to share their skill and specialization and to have the opportunity to explain that to, to preschoolers, to, to, individ, to, to young children. So among the different types, I mean, and there was a broad variety of different professional types that we invited to our school. But, you know, I could tell you we had uh, uh, private fitness instructors. We had a, a 3D bookmaker who, who, who prints books on National Forest, you know, a vegan cake maker, professional DJ, uh, you know, water truck driver. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, those experiences that we were able to provide are unique. They're, uh, they're fundamental. And, and, and on occasion, uh, I'll come across one of the children that we worked with uh, during our time in our school. And uh, I'm pleased to say that they, they appear to be, uh, their, their affect is, is one of, of brightness. It's one of awareness and alertness. Those were the goals. Those were the outcomes that we began with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, the politicization in the schools it's unfortunate because the losers are the children. The losers in a politicized school environment are the children. So one of the things that this School Success Act has done is it's taken fundamentals out of school and replaced it with with a social agenda. Um, You know, part of that is understanding that social agendas may or may not have a place in in our schools, depending on what they are. But the one thing, the critical factor is that we cannot replace 
fundamental education with a social agenda. Children need to be able to have a pathway to adulthood created for them, which begins with learning how to think, not what to think, but how to think, and learning fundamentals that will carry on through society. A child you know, needs to be able to read. I mean, that's a fundamental skill. And if we're not, if children aren't reading by third grade, then they're at-risk students. Uh, part of that's created by the fact that we're not doing enough in the schools. I want to get a sense for your um, take on certain social movements, frankly. Um, and we can, again, I'm always down to have a nuanced discussion. We are on a podcast. We are not on a 200-character answer on a form. <laughs> so when you talk about um, a social agenda, um, uh, I think it is true that um, that uh, there are teachers who have uh, opinions on issues that are in the political electoral realm. You could argue whether they should be considered political issues or not, or are they just human rights issues? But there is true that there are a lot of teachers in Oregon that care deeply about those issues, and it becomes transparent for students what their teachers believe. And that can influence them in negative and positive ways regarding, uh, you might think Mr. Smith uh, is a total loon, so you're not going <laughs> to agree with his politics. Or you might think, you know, Miss Reagan is such an amazing person, and now I agree with her politics or something. But um, outside of the school context, I do want to ask you, truly, because it, it, it does matter as a governor. I think of a governor as a as a sometimes charismatic, but certainly as a kind of a spiritual, emotional leader for the community, as much as they are a policymaking expert. Um, and so I think of um, the resurgence and new heights of the black lives matter movement that were uh, because it didn't BLM didn't start in 2020, but it certainly reached new heights in 2020 and as well as uh, stop Asian hate uh, stop AAPI hate kind of a response to from the Asian American community on uh, issues of uh, racial discrimination and elderly people getting beat up because of misplaced COVID anxieties. So, um, you know, as somebody who uh, has uh, the beliefs that you do, um, I guess what I'm asking is not not a yes or no, like BLM good, BLM bad. What I'm asking is on these issues, um, where do you agree and where do you disagree? Um, so you're asking me, where do I agree with? With like the Black Lives Matter movement in general. So like, for example, um, you know, uh, one of the big policy uh, uh, policy proposals was to remove money from police department budgets and put it into different places. I'm seeing you frowning. So maybe it's the case that you believe racism is a serious problem that needs to be addressed. Um, but I don't want to assume that I don't know what your perspective is. So, so just share so, about your opinion. Let, let me share with you why I don't like the idea of removing budget or removing uh, funds from the, the law enforcement budget. So as I talked about previously, uh, a one size, excuse me, a one size fits all solution was created uh, when the emergency uh, act was uh, was was implemented by by uh, through executive authority uh, under Kay Brown. Uh, during that time, we had a lot of individuals who were very afraid. Uh, we had a lot of uh, individuals who lost their jobs. In fact, I was an individual who was laid off as a result of, uh, of, of the Emergency Act being implemented. Uh, during that time, 
while a lot of people were at home, while a lot of people were afraid, uh, I was still in the community. Uh, I was uh, working with homeless individuals, uh, providing supplies. And one of the, th <laughs> there was a statement that was made early on uh, while a lot of people were at home and locked down. Uh, I walked up to an individual with supplies and I said to him, hey, you know, very respectfully, I was like, uh, hey, you know, I've got some supplies here. Uh, you know, I want to, you know, be able to offer these to you. But I, you know, if you don't, if you're afraid to take them, uh, you know, I, I, I won't give them to you. I won't, you know, come any closer or anything like that. But he said, uh, you know, the individual shrugged their shoulders and said, you know what? We're all going to die of something. And the reality is I still see that individual out on the street now. So while a lot of people were afraid, there were real things going on. One of the things that I, I communicate to people is there were a number of children who in their isolation committed suicide, not being isolated from their friends, not having access to their social structure, created such a sense of, of poor mental health that these children took their own lives. And then on top of that, uh, it hasn't been much more than a year, but there was a 17-year-old boy who was shot in the head across the street from my home. Uh, I actually was the first one to find him and I found him and he was dying as I found him. So I looked into this child's eyes. The schools are closed, businesses are closed, recreation's closed, and this child is dying in the street inside of a school parking lot. There's nothing that I could do for this child but to provide comfort and, and pray for him uh, you know, but at the same time, who came to help before I walked out, before I realized what was happening. And at once I realized what was happening, the statement that I made to my wife was call the police. So I go over there first and the police, they're the next, they were the next there. But the reality is, is police are often the first there. So for me, experiencing this child dying in a school parking lot is incredibly traumatic one of the things that I realized about during that time is for the officers, it's also incredibly traumatic. We've gone through a period of time where we, we have elected, some of us, some of our population have elected to uh, not recognize the difficulty of the, the role of a, of a police officer or law enforcement officer. Now, that isn't to say that as a, as a, as a one collective group, that they all represent the same stewardship and professionalism. But among those, the ones that we recognize as being excellent public stewards uh, you know, and professional public stewards, we also wanna recognize that these individuals have a family to go home to as well. And so with all that to be, to be uh, you know, now in the discussion, uh, I realized that, you know, most people don't have the heart or the stomach to run into situations like the one that I found myself in. Yeah. Most people want nothing to do with it. They want the individual who will come and, and help resolve the issue for them. That's in, that's in direct conflict to taking away uh, funding to ensure that agencies have the ability to recruit professional public stewards without professional public stewards on our streets our communities are at risk and it's not just a matter of hiring bodies but it's a matter of hiring people with a heart for the community people who obviously are quick on their feet 
but realize that even in the midst of some tragic situation, tomorrow's another day and I have to be prepared for that day. Hmm. So what we're actually doing is taking our officers' attention off of the streets during a time where homicides in Portland and Salem communities are, are only rising and we're creating new distractions for our officers out on the streets. To me, hmm. that's uh, it's, it's in direct conflict. I, I want to see professional stewards on our streets. Uh, the officers who, who came to the scene where I was directly involved, they said to me, you know, they said to me, if you, if you need counseling or anything like that, please reach out to us. Mm. You know, that was them, uh, you know, that was them fulfilling a significant role in our community and offering resources to somebody who experienced the exact same traumatic event that they did. Mm. So, you know, that really, that really was a significant moment in further refining my understanding of the, the, the role of law enforcement officers in our society. Okay. As a, as well, a youth, let me say this. So- yeah. And you know, you're a long winded speaker. I'm a long winded speaker. So I'll just, you know, it's nothing wrong with you speaking, but I'm going to jump in. I, I, uh, am discomforted at times by, and I'll say this, right. There are people who put that uniform on and they go out and commit incredible acts of heroism. I'll tell you that much. I agree with that. Okay. With that fact. But I also think that, um, heroism, and I'm not saying that that police departments have tried to monopolize it, but heroism comes in many forms. And um, so just for example, uh, my friend Erica posted uh, posted within the last 24 hours on Facebook something that I just pulled up that I thought was so fascinating and um, never gets in the public conversation. Uh, she basically said she was going through a bunch of worry for her children who are neurodivergent and LGBTQ, and she's going through worry about bodily autonomy being lost uh, by the potential, uh, the likely Roe v. Wade being uh, struck down soon. And she said, but while running errands, my eldest had me pull over to visit and hug an unhoused person who they struck a friendship with when that person protected them from a stalker. And so she said, not all is lost. And it gave me hope. And I thought that was such a profound thing because it's so easy for us to believe that unhoused people as uh, a uniform block, because it's convenient to label people are a menace to public safety. This is an unhoused person who might've protected somebody from a serious crime or from the crime of stalking, which is serious. And so I just wanted to add that into the conversation um, while also uh, I'm uh, kind of pressing you on. Um, so you, you unpack the issue of policing and, and I think that you've done a, a good job articulating your view on that. Um, but like these movements, the black lives matter and stop Asian hate um, what I want to know what you think they get right. And it could be as small as yes, racism exists and it's a problem. But do you, you know, how far do you give credence to the fact that, you know, these are mostly young people. Um, they want to live in a world where uh, these issues are eradicated. Um, and do you think any of their strategies are correct and appropriate? Or do you think it's all misguided? Like, let's, let's, let's get into the nitty gritty on the issues affecting people of color, if you could. Uh, you know what, I, you know, so it seems like there's a few different questions there on the issue of whether or not you know, these young people are, are, are right for what they believe in. That's not a subject that I'm going to really be 
getting into. So one of the things that I'm running on is the fact that we do have a right to expression. That right to expression ends at somebody else's body or, or property. So uh, what we get right is, you know, we have, uh, you know, we're discontent with something. You know, we use our right of freedom of speech to to address the issue. What we get wrong is where we think that that right of freedom of speech extends to our ability to touch somebody else's property or body. Uh, that's not uh, that that is uh, it, it, it's it's a crime. So we want to make sure that our young people are focused on on what matters. What matters is is uh, not just. Uh, you know, the outcome, yes, it matters, but the way you get to that outcome also matters. What about blocking streets, which is not uh, damaging property, but it's it's affecting people's ability to get to their jobs and their families? I mean, so you tell me what's right about that. I'm a single mom. I'm trying to get to work and I can't drive up the road. What's good about that? Uh, I think that there are so many um, angles, one of which is that we live in a very, very uh, automobile-centric society. I'm sounding like a Eugenian hipster here because I believe in you know alternative methods of transit. So sometimes you have people blocking streets simply because they believe that environmentally it's a tragedy how uh, addicted we are to fuel and cars. But, but also um, acts of disruption are needed in order to, uh, I mean, when uh, the civil rights movement occurred, you know, people flooding into the streets, acts of disruption are needed uh, to, to, to raise a voice nonviolently, I think, in, in many situations. Well, you know, kind of focusing on one of the issues that you meant or that you that you mentioned. Uh, so, you know, well, I, you know, you know, to me, you know, uh, the vehicle is, you know, we're, you know, we need it as, as it's the way that we make our, our livelihood. Uh, with that said, uh, you know, I've also been deeply involved in bike issues in the past. So you may or may not know this about me, but true. Uh, I will say, I'm sorry. I said true. Yeah. Talk about it. So I was a, uh, I was the chair of the uh, Albany Bicycle and Pedestrian Advisory Commission. So I've spent a number of years involved in pedestrian and bicycle issues um, I'm, I'm not one of the individuals who, uh, wants to prevent, uh, you know, bicycles from accessing all of the infrastructure, uh, that we pay for as, as, uh, as Oregonians. Um, but I do think that it's, it is within our, our pursuit of happiness to utilize and choose the vehicle that best suits us. Um, so one of the things that I bring up is I am for, you know, a cleaner and greener Oregon. But what that doesn't mean is taking away somebody else's right of economy, as we've seen occurring in Washington. So in Washington, they want to implement a mandate that all vehicles by 2030 are electric vehicles. I know that there's a strong idealization of the electric vehicle, but the reality is uh, because of the work that I do now and the research that I perform inside of that work, I have a far different understanding of the mining and other issues behind EV vehicles that aren't the shiny, glitzy, marketed perspectives that people have easily found themselves adapting to. So the reality is, is the gas-powered car is one of the most significant inventions in our lifetime. Uh, it's allowed people to raise and feed a family. And for me, uh, having a vehicle at, at, at a point in time was also like having, uh, it was like having uh, a second, it was like having a home outside of a campground. 
mm-hmm. during cold nights when my when my children were you know were were with their grandparents it was the place my wife and i slept outside of our you know out away outside of our business so that we could get up in the morning you know be near the near to work and start a new day you know so it's like you know i i'm not uh i'm not a car basher uh, I, I appreciate our cyclists and I want our cyclists and our pedestrians to be safe. But the reality is, is if it wasn't automobiles, if it was 10 bicycle lanes instead, uh, we're still blocking people from their opportunity to engage in the economy. And so bringing attention to an issue, there are many ways to do that. But what we, you know, one of the things that we also should recognize is when when our demonstrations are hurting people unintended or causing unintended harm to individuals. So, you know, I know that you mentioned it's nuanced. Right. Um, The reality is, is that, you know, we can call, you know, there's a number of people who are adversely affected when that happens. So the person that can't get to work finally gets to work and they're fired. You know, that's an unintended consequence that caused I mean, we have smartphones now, almost all of us, not everyone. So you could take a picture and say, I'm, I am stuck in traffic. I know when I lived in New York, I know when I lived in New York, if your subway was not going to make it on time, um, employers were lenient about that because there's literally, uh, an understanding there. Uh, I think also if you're, if you're stopped in traffic and you don't uh, unexpectedly, might be a time to smell the roses. Think, what am I doing in this community right now? What's going on around me? And and reflect on that moment before you're able to ultimately make it. There's they're not holding these these auto these motorists hostages hostage. I don't think. Uh, but you know, an interesting point you made about vehicles uh, and and being unhoused. Um, I lived in a vehicle when I was unhoused for about the better part of a year. And uh, like you, I maintained uh, a lot of productivity. I was working two jobs until COVID fired me from both of them. Uh, or COVID laid me off from them. Um, and I, uh, was, I ran a campaign for office. So I ran for mayor of Eugene came in second out of seven. Um, and, uh, and I always felt that living in a car, funny enough, it was an electric one, Nissan leaf. So that's interesting, but I also couldn't afford it eventually because my monthly payment on it was too high. Cause, cause again, like the, like you said, the idealization of electric cars, maybe we can't get there um, immediately, unless we had some like serious subsidies and that's going to go into some economic issues. And you're looking at me saying it's seeming like it's not viable. So, um, I thought that was interesting. I did think it, I, it was a relatively privileged position because well, well, I want to stop you there. Sure. I don't want to say it's not viable. Okay. But what I do want to say, so interestingly, as a contemporary issue, Thomas, we're seeing that the federal government has, has already entered those subsidies on the, the behalf of the American people. The state of Oregon on ODOT have accepted $100 million uh, for the purpose of, uh, of, of developing EV infrastructure here in the state of Oregon. And the reality is, is we haven't increased our power capacity, not a single gigawatt. So now we're finding ways to draw power out of the electrical grid that isn't paid for, that will eventually hit you and other Oregonians like me in our pockets. If you're paying attention to what's going on in Europe, we're seeing the exact, the exact same issues occur with rising power prices as a result of the 
infrastructure, the electrical infrastructure, uh, seeing increasing demand and no increasing expansion. So those are real issues. And those are issues that once these these uh, these EV infrastructural uh, products go into the ground, that the next governor will have to address. You know, we haven't done anything to improve our, you know, our electrical grid. And the, one of the other results that we're seeing come out of this type of infrastructure is rolling blackouts. So as long as Oregonians are prepared to have lights some days and not have lights other days, that may also mean you won't be able to drive your car some days. Uh, you know, then the streets will be open for walking or protesting or anything else. Interesting. Hey, well, thanks for providing that perspective. Um, I definitely have uh, at least one or two other questions I'd love to ask you. Um, and, uh, feel free to cut me off and say, Hey, I got to make dinner for my family, whatever it may be. But, um, I really enjoy this conversation with you, Tim. I'm really glad you're running for, for governor, even though, uh, it, this has may, may have revealed that, that, uh, my personal appreciation for you might not overcome the policy, uh, details. If it's a, a, a Reed versus McLeod or a Kotech versus McLeod, I don't know where, where I would vote yet, but I'll say in November, but I'll say this much. Uh, I always really like to ask people um, who I, I interview a lot of musicians and I, cause I'm a rapper and I interview uh, a lot of political leaders cause I'm an aspiring, um, I'm a politics nerd. It's like my sports, you know, I, I follow politics like it's sports and um, but with greater consequences. And so uh, I always try to uh, try to get those people. I, I ask political leaders about their taste in music truly, because I think music and the fundamental rhythm of life uh, and it, the ability for music to keep us going, to put us in moods that'll help us be more productive or more relaxed. I think it's a beautiful thing. And so I always like to ask, you know, to at least name, you know, an artist or two that inspires you, keeps you going or something that you've been listening to lately during this challenging campaign season. You know, there's, uh, so, you know, um, I got one you weren't prepared for. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not really into uh, a lot of contemporary music. I guess if I had to pick a genre, you know, it'd be more or less more or less jazz. But uh, you know, I'm I'm really open to music. So um, I'm glad to hear that you're a rapper. Uh, one thing that you may appreciate uh, is if you check me out on YouTube. I put together a little campaign song that uh, as a rapper like yourself, you might appreciate. I uh, I listen to it. I love that there's policies. I love that there's policies. You know, you can tell by the way I talk, I have a rapid fire flow. Yeah. Me and Tim are on the pod doing it on God. Like, you know, something like that. But boom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that you had your policies because truly, you know, in the education world, we talk about differentiated instruction, which can mean, you know, not using the exact same method to get information out to every student. Some voters are going to are going to see something like that and they're going to appreciate that you put your policy ideas in a, a way that was consumable for, for them. Sure. Um, so I thought that was cool. Um, and uh, there's a lot of jazz greats that I certainly love. I got to live in New York for a year and I didn't experience enough of it because I was I was broke. But um, my friend took me out to a jazz club, and it just blew my mind. I mean, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned cannabis yet. I'm a I'm a proponent of cannabis. I'm here normalizing it here, holding it up. I thought about should I smoke it on the show? No, I won't do that. But uh, <laughs> because it's not very professional. But um, 
yeah, I was under the influence of cannabis uh, and watching a jazz performance and it was just like some of the best jazz ever. And it was one of those moments that's very transcendent and beautiful to me. Um, and so any concerts that you've been to that are particularly, you know, cause I am trying to get a proper noun. You said jazz, but you didn't say Coltrane, <laughs> you know? Okay. So, uh, you know, you know, I, I, as I get older, you know, I guess my, you know, my taste in music kind of shifts. I, I don't listen to it for the same emotional thrill that I used to, but I'll tell you one of the jazz musicians that I appreciate, uh, uh from a standpoint of his personality was Thelonious Monk. Thelonious Monk was uh, unabashed uh, piano player who played the piano the way he wanted to, mm. uh, and he really hid his skills uh, through some of the through some of his techniques. Uh, so I, I definitely appreciate that about him. Growing up, I was uh, heavily into the uh, the alternative rock. Uh, so uh, recently, in a Ballopedia survey, they had asked me what was the last song that got stuck in my head, and for me, that was actually uh, the Living End. Uh, prisoner of society so that gives you a little bit about uh, about my background nice but, uh, as you know i also uh you know i also have a have, have an, an enjoyment and appreciation for music in several different avenues so uh, i won't necessarily name uh you know uh, you know all the songs that i'm listening to right now but you know i've kind of given you three different angles to music in my life awesome awesome yeah i certainly appreciate that you you got an a on that one i promise that was great <laughs> Um, I guess that, um, one thing that I want to talk about, I, 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 okay. I'll give you a chance to pick one or two. Okay. Or you could even go both, but campaign finance reform is something that Oregon has not had for a while. And that to me is concerning. Um, and, uh, you also previously mentioned, and again, this is like a disparate thing, but this is how my brain works. Uh, you know, the, when we're talking about protests, you know, you can, you can do what you want up until it's hard, it hurt it affects someone else's body or someone else's property, you know? And so, um, your, your stance on abortion rights, you know, it's a, it's a hot button issue when you run for governor, as opposed to like a, a small local race, County or city, everything's on the table. You, you, your voice is very important on a wide range of issues, which is why we could talk for much more, but I think keeping it concise also has value. So, um, yeah, either one of those issues are both campaign finance reform and abortion rights. I'll take Thomas. I'll go with both. There you go. So one of the realities of two campaign finance reform is not only is it desperately needed, but uh, it, you know, throughout this campaign, uh, it's been repeatedly highlighted how uh, fundraising and finance is uh, the, the prominent factor for choosing a state executive or, or any other, you know, legislative office uh to me that is uh, exactly why we are in the situation statewide that we're in because we elect individuals who you know maybe take out a home equity loan or they come from uh they, they come from uh you know they're 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 an heir or you know have an inheritance and they're able to throw that money uh onto the onto the table and say look at me uh, as your next governor uh, and unfortunately, our, our political parties, they've they've bought into that uh, mentality hook, line and sinker. And it actually is uh, the reason why I, I was able to bring up that a number of candidates, legally qualified candidates in the state of Oregon, have been uh, prevented from accessing the voters for those reasons. So, uh, you know, we really need to to look at how we can 
uh, restore balance uh, in in our general elections and also in our primary elections. Uh, I was reached out to by a consortium of individuals regarding uh, my opinions on uh, campaign finance reform, and they had proposed a couple of different solutions. And although I wasn't able to support either one of those solutions, I made sure that it was clear that the idea of campaign finance reform is not only, it's it's one that we need to be able to attack in pieces. So there won't be any sweeping legislation that accurately or, you know, efficiently or effectively uh, addresses all of the issues with campaign finance reform. But one thing that I will definitely support as governor is, is legislation that advances specific issues regarding campaign finance and looks to address one specific issue at a time. I think through that, we can reach the consensus that's going to allow us to eventually restore integrity in the Oregon's election system. And then in terms of, uh, you know, you know, the road versus Wade, abortion, bodily autonomy, uh, I'll let you know right away. Uh, I personally don't believe in abortion. As a father, uh, I, I couldn't imagine have, aborting any of my, my children. Uh, but with that said, uh, I also uh, have no choice but to respect another's bodily autonomy. Uh, the reason being is that uh, an infant, uh, an infant, cannot exist without a host. It needs it needs a mother to create a home for it to live in. And so, if a an individual, if a woman, uh, decides that she does not want to create a habitation, an environment for an infant, and she wishes to have that infant removed from her body, you know, the reality is, is that it's her choice. Uh, it doesn't matter whether or not the legislation or, or whether or not legislation is put in place to tell a woman uh, that she can't do something with her body, which I'm against, just as I was in the one size fits all solution of telling people they have to wear masks because that's also against the individual's body. So these issues mirror each other exactly. And so I say, you know, I'm as as governor, uh, I will not put myself in a position to be determining what a woman or any other individual in our society is able to do with their body. Uh, I do believe that before specific body or gender modification occurs, the individual probably needs to be 18 years old so that they can have full mental acuity regarding decisions that are made in life to have an opportunity to make those decisions with full rationality and some maturity. But the reality is So what is are you saying there? Are you saying that because people get pregnant at 14, 12, 11, 16. So what are you saying there about uh, being 18? Oh, so this issue is, so, so the, yeah, right. So when, so, you know, I, I talked to an individual the other day who, you know, is, a, is uh, in management today, but she had her first child at 15. We know that a lot of a lot of people choose abortions because they don't feel economically ready. You know, that's a decision that people make. But we also know that, uh, you know, here in Oregon, among the rest of the states, we're 47th in mental health outcomes. So one of the things that we also need to be able to address is not just whether or not the abortion happens, but whether or not 
there is some other aspect that's not being addressed in the individual's mental health? Is it an issue of support? Is it an issue of economics? Is it an issue of, of fear? You know, I think that we, you know, we don't, you know, you know, I want individuals to maintain their autonomy. I don't want us to ever wind up in a situation where, you know, women are forced to wear burqas in our society just because we're, you know, we're Americans and uh, we have a freedom of choice. And in Oregon, we have a freedom of expression. So it's not that I see, you know, abortion as a freedom of expression, but it is, you know, if a, if a woman, you know, a pregnant woman decides that she doesn't want to have a child, you know, that that is uh, a choice that she's making independently. And the government saying, no, you can't doesn't necessarily prevent that from happening. You know, it just creates the conditions for it to be even more unsafe, to create a black market for for that specific uh, uh, service. So, uh, you know, I guess, you know, the reality is, is that individuals need to have the option to decide for themselves uh, either way, there's a consequence. Having a child, you know, comes with consequences and having an abortion, it also comes with consequences. You don't get off scot-free. You know, there's a, there's a residual, uh, you know, there's, there's a residual effect that occurs every time an individual has an abortion. So, you know, while I respect the individual's right to do with what? their body, what they will. I was so I also- tempted to not ask any more follow-ups on this. But when you say a residual effect that happens in every abortion, I'm not sure I agree. I know that there are, there are uh, issues of trauma and regret that occur in, in, in some instances. But, but in every abortion, I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Can you clarify? Well, the reality is, is if, if there isn't a residual effect, I mean, you know, the reality is, is that one, regardless, you know, so stepping back and kind of looking at what an abortion is, it's, you know, it's removal of a living being a living organism from inside of the body to an environment where it can no longer exist. So, you know, if, if an abortion is not, if it doesn't have a a personal outcome, then maybe this is because it's being used as a form of contraception. Uh, I, I think we really need to ask in our society, should the removal of a life be contraception? And so one of the things that I like to say is that, you know, you, you had mentioned earlier that you're not for the death penalty, but when it comes to abortion, you're, you know, for the, the, the loss of a child's life. So I think really in society, you know, we do have these dynamic opinions that exist, but the reality is, is that life is life. And if you're not for the death of a, of a, of a criminal who may have committed a heinous act, you know, we also have to look at the effect on, on a child who's coming into, who, would be coming into the world without uh, having done anything to anybody. And we don't know who that person could be. Just like in my life, I explained, I witnessed firsthand a late term abortion, 17 years old, that individual was aborted on our streets. And so I wanna make sure that our children have better outcomes. One of the challenges, I'll, I'll, I'll respond. One of the challenges with this conversation is a wide spectrum of frankly, the biology that we're talking about from the moment of conception to nine months later and the possibility of birth. And so that's where my biggest red flags come up of saying, you know, we're talking about a child and the, the earliest of pregnancies are aborted with a pill, you know? So if I have a tapeworm in me, I'm not saying human beings are tapeworms, but simply based on the potential for something to become a walking, living, breathing human life, does not, to me, say that it actually is. Of course, that is a uh, terminological, that is a semantic 
disagreement. And that's often something where we're just going to be in circles. Um, but you know, yeah, a lot of things. Give me pause. I, I was a intern, a legislative intern with Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. So uh, that back in 2013. So um, we are not going to agree on on a lot of these, but I feel happy that I let you speak for a while, got you on the record. Yeah. And um, and so I guess what I would move into is the final question. This has been a really uh, enjoyable chat. I think you have a lot of spirit, uh, and um, I, I hope that you keep going because. Um, yeah, again, this is not an endorsement of everything that you've said or that you believe, but I'll say this much as somebody who's a progressive, as somebody who's a, who's a staunch liberal and on most policy issues, I want to have the debate rigorously, which means that I want balance and I want um, uh, smart, um, forthright, honest stewards of conservative thought to engage with. And right now, I, I think that um, those people you know, exist, a, but they're not a running. Interesting point. Well, so that's an interesting point is, uh, you know, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, you know, that'll be one of the ways that I'm different from some of my counterparts is some of my counterparts believe that it is, you know, you know, that it is the role of the government to protect the un the unborn life. And that means creating legislation that prevents, you know, that life from from even having an opportunity to take form. You know, as you mentioned, it doesn't always, you know, miscarriage exists. Sometimes forced miscarriage is the outcome, but the reality is that there's, you know, until a child is, is, is born, you know, we don't know whether or not that pregnancy will complete to term. But one of the things that I definitely think we need to address is making sure that, that, you know, late term abortion, you know, it comes off of the table for the reality that, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, we are aware that a child has a heartbeat, you know, it's not just a, it's not a tapeworm. It's not a parasite. It's a, it's a person that's developing fingers and legs and arms. And I understand that, you know, from a emotional standpoint, there are going to be people who really find themselves disassociated from those features. And, and as, as a, as an individual, you know, that's okay. Um, you know, my goal as governor is to maintain Oregon's Liberty. The reality is, is that we, just like in this conversation, you've mentioned several times that you, you have uh, various or varying viewpoints as, as I do. But knowing that, you know, that doesn't keep me from uh, sitting down with you to have the conversation. Because the reality is, is that in so many ways, we're more alike than we are different. And so I know that as the conversation continues, as you and I continue a dialogue, we'll find more things that we have in common that through through that conversation, through that development of a relationship and commonality will help us move more to a central view on policy. Hmm. And that's exactly what the state's missing. We're 40 years in imbalance. We're 40 years with, you know, one party in the strength of control in the Oregon party, but also turning to the party with, you know, that doesn't have control and saying, you know, I need to protect you from these people without, without, without any real legislative power. But then at the same time, realizing, realizing that this, this, uh, this other party is also internally attacking its own candidate. So really recognizing that the dysfunction exists and we really need to be able to find equilibrium and balance that, that ultimately begins with recognizing people as people and then finding policy that benefits people that doesn't seek to subjugate people. Dysfunction totally exists, Tim.
And uh, and the final question, you're going to appreciate this because it's open, open-ended, but it has to do with healing dysfunction. And when, before we get to there, let me just say, uh, that was a good exchange. Uh, I'm uncomfortable with how long it went because you and I will never seek our own abortions, <laughs> y- you know? So I'm like, did we really just have a 15 minute conversation about something that we'll never be able to experience from that perspective? Well, that's a reality that we did that, but, but I do have three daughters. And so the reality is, is that, go. you know, this is a women's issue to me, you know, having a wife and three daughters, I am all about women's issues and understanding both sides of it. So there the reality go. is, is in my home. You know, I want my daughters to maintain their bodily autonomy, but at the reality is I would be devastated if that was the choice that they chose. Okay. It's their, you know, ultimately it's their choice, but the reality is, is that, you know, thinking about a life form and something that actually descends from another human being, it's not just that it appears out of nowhere, it's a descendant. And if, and so we, can, if we can extract this polarization and pull it apart and look at what's really happening... A lot of the organizations that I believe in and that I fight for are the ones that, in my opinion, are preventing abortions from happening through contraceptives and preventative care and education. And that's just my opinion. Oh, that's so, right. So let me. That's ta- where we should. Yeah. That's where we should be focused. Final question, Tim. Really good conversation for the most part. Uh, I'm going to listen back and be like, oh, I should have hit him on that. I should have interrupted him. But are we going to spend all day interrupting each other? No, we're listening to each other. Um, this show is called Broken Class. It references my um, aspiring uh, educational interest uh, as uh, someone who wants to pursue a doctor of education degree and also kind of kind of saying that this is our two-person classroom. We're breaking down the norms of what happens in schools. We've talked about things we don't like about them and, um, and, and educating one another. Um, but also there's a lot of brokenness in society. And so a simple open-ended question to end with, Tim, before we get to a song that uh, uh, you won't be able to hear it, but my friend Cruiser Urameshi is my next guest. We're going to end with a little instrumental piece that he produced. He's a great beat maker. Um, The question is, what is something that's broken in society and uh, what's a way to fix it? could be anything. It could be something we've already addressed if you want to repeat and hit home the message of your campaign, or you can go a totally different direction. So one of the things I'll say really quickly is uh, your audience can check me out at uh, www.or, the number four, and my last name, McLeod, M-C-C-L-O-U-D. We'll link it right Uh, here in the show notes. Wonderful. Uh, you know, search my name on Google. Some things will come up. There's a lot of different things that uh, that have uh, that have been put out there. Um, but in terms of our society, I want to go back to an issue that you mentioned regarding a couple of uh, uh, of uh, uh, culture centered groups. Uh, I think you had mentioned stop Asian hate and Black Lives Matter. Mm. So one of the things that uh, is is broken in our society is uh, we want so so moving forward, uh, society will see the vast reduction of protests as more individuals have opportunities to access a thriving economy. Uh, you know, we talk about, we talk, you know, your show is called Broken Class. Mm-hmm. And right now, you know, we have a working class that is broken. So the reality is, is that's going to by itself cause a tremendous amount of discontent. And at the same time, you know, we have historic disenfranchisement that, you know, takes root in Oregon that that uh, and in many ways uh, affects groups that are are likely to uh, raise voice with issue regarding access to economy. But the reality is, is that, uh, you know, a broken economy 
A, no, a non-thriving economy affects everyone. And so the next governor needs to be looking at ways to reintroduce small businesses and making sure that those small businesses have opportunities to uh, to to grow uh, without fear of initial startup costs or, uh, you know, annual tax burdens. So let's get people back to work. Let's encourage new businesses to, to grow and uh, relocate here in Oregon. Let's get uh, our housing development booming. Let's create houses for people who, you know, are in school and working and want to be able to grow a family or live independently. We need to get our economy going. That's broken. And it's got to start now. Hey, man, when it comes to small businesses, we would probably agree that with the pandemic, one of the most shameful and and disappointing things that happened is so many deaths of small businesses, but also so much flow of money towards the companies that basically federal governments said, and maybe state governments as well, said, you can, yeah, Walmart, yeah, Amazon, you know, Netflix, all these companies are still well positioned to profit even more from people staying at home and the mom and pop shops. Uh, completely were were barred from it and um, it is sad I, I, I've grown to be I'm 28 years old growing up in Eugene Oregon I had no interest I, I thought all businessmen were the Koch brothers or the Walton family and and the reality is people running businesses on the corner store you know are are are, are so divorced from from that and so I really appreciate that you brought that up um, and one thing I will say to you because of, again, we've talked about the barriers. I love your confidence and I love your ability to articulate your campaign from a perspective of saying what you will do as governor. Uh, I personally, um, believe there's only about two or three people that might become our next governor. And I don't think that you're one of them. Uh, and that's, I appreciate you being open to me saying that, but, um, but I know that you have the capacity to continue to advocate for issues and um, you have a unique perspective and and uh, maybe where I, I could I would continue being in touch with you and seeing you advocating is for um, small businesses, you know, whether it's through I don't know what kinds of local advocacy groups out there or, or just through your own voice. Well, you know, you wouldn't be the first one to say that I wouldn't be the governor. Uh, but I also am going to let the people decide. So yeah. with that being said, you know, I'm going to let, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to let the, uh, the people of Oregon decide. So with that, you know, we have different opinions. We've had different opinions on a lot of things, but the reality is, is that doesn't in any way keep me or prevent me from having conversations with you. And the fact that, you know, you have different views on my campaign than others do, that's, that's what we need in Oregon. So the reality is, is that your opinion doesn't affect theirs or mine, or my opinion may not affect yours or theirs. And so then, you know, everyone has an opportunity to freely express as provided by our constitution. And thank God for that. Hey, you've spent more time with me than I had initially asked because of your commitment to expressing uh, what you feel about what's going on in Oregon. So it's been a great pleasure. I'm going to stop the recording now and wish everybody a great day. And you will now hear in the audience Cruiser Urameshi uh, with the song blank. I'll put in later what the song is. Turtle Helmet. It's an instrumental. So vibe out for a little bit.